the flight out of New Orleans has just been canceled. A large crowd of anxious passengers are lining up, desperate to get on a flight home. And then a man known as the travel detective turns to the crowd and announces in a big, loud voice, we're going to have to 240 this. The woman's job at the ticketing counter just got a whole lot busier, thanks to Peter Greenberg. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just dug even deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week, I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. The best experiences i ever had when I traveled was when the plans didn't work and you had to turn left instead of turning right. And that's where you met a lifelong friend that you never would have met otherwise. That's the beauty of it for me. Peter Greenberg is perhaps America's most recognized and most respected frontline travel news journalist, a multi-Emmy award-winning investigative reporter and a producer who's known in the travel industry as the travel detective. Peter Greenberg has been inducted into the U.S. Travel Association's Hall of Leaders and the famous writer Paul Thoreau called him the liberator and defender of the traveling public. It's not easy to pin down a man who is a moving target, spends most of his time up in the air. But lucky for me, we were at the same travel and adventure show in Dallas, Texas, so I could hear from Peter firsthand the most coveted travel secrets, some of which will surprise you and others you wish you'd never heard. This is a conversation definitely worth the ride. So I want to know... Yeah. See, you're, you're like the travel guy, Peter. I've known you always as the travel guy, the travel expert. But I'm wondering how a volunteer fireman who at 18 years old decides he's going to fight fires ends up becoming the world's foremost expert on all things travel. How do you go from 18-year-old with the hose out there doing your training and now look at you. You're the guru. And I'm still a fireman. And you're still a I'm fireman? still on duty three days a week, seven months a year. Well, hold on a second. How do you fit in all the travel that you're doing around the world and you're still a fireman? Three days a week, seven months a year. <laughs> I still it. do it, absolutely. Are you serious? That's I'm not even serious. a joke. No, it's absolutely true. Wow. Yeah, I was on duty last week. I'll be on duty next week. So Peter, you and I have known each other yeah. for about 20 years, going back to the Travel Channel days right. when we both had travel channel shows, which was then part of the Discovery Networks. Right. And now it's part of them again. And got sold and now it's back, back again. Yeah. yeah, the whole thing. But this morning, uh, as we're both about to go out onto the stage and present uh, travel stories to people here at the Travel and Adventure Show in Dallas, um, you're running around like crazy because you've got 12 crews all over the world right now trying to pull together a story about an A380, an Emirates A380. What's, what's been going on this morning? Well, as I've done all my life as a journalist, I believe in process first. Mm. If you can understand the process, that's when you value the product. You just can't just look at it and take it for granted. I really wanted to do a process piece as nine days in the life of the largest aircraft ever built, everybody who touches it, everything that touches it, and everything it touches, and everyone it touches becomes the story. Love that. So we're doing nine days on one aircraft, not 
similar aircraft, one tail number. While it's in active on its, duty? On its regular schedule. Yeah. So it starts uh, tomorrow, yep. New York to Dubai, then then Dubai to Hong Kong, then back to Dubai, then Dubai to Auckland, then back to Dubai, then Dubai to Mumbai. And you're going to be on this flight? I'll be on a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, but I've got crews not only full-time on the plane, we have crews at the operations center in Dubai. we got crews in every airport ahead of it, behind so, so it. So they can get it landing, taking off. But it's more than just the plane. We're going to figure out who's on this plane. Why are they on this plane? Where are they going? I love For this. example, imagine a cherry farmer in Ojai, California, racing to LAX to get his cherries on that plane. Yes. It's cargo, right? That's just one 80th of the stories. Now we're doing something else. We're flying to Dubai. We're monitoring the engine performance. We're figuring out what's going right with the plane, what's going wrong with the plane. We're telling all those other stories of who came on that plane, how the pilots trained for that I particular flight. Where are we going to get to see this? Where, where will on it be PBS. On? It'll be on PBS. And when? Wait. Oh, probably by the end of this year. Right. I, I love you've got so many fascinating facts stored away in that head of yours. You're like a walking encyclopedia of, of travel, not to mention New York Times bestselling author. Um, and every time we meet up, I, I learn so much from you, little tidbits about all kinds of things. Like last night at dinner, these are, Phil, these are the, these are the flights you've got to take. If you're ever going from uh, New York to Ireland, you've got to get on this airline. You've right. got to go at this time of the day. These, these secrets, I love these secrets. Well, how I do that is very simple. It's called the conversation. Yes. I don't just go to the airport. I hang out there and talk to the gate agents. I talk to the rampers. I talk to the guys loading the bags. I want to learn what they do. I want to appreciate what they do. You that want to learn what a, what a, what a 240 is. Yeah, I do, but I do know what a 240 is. I know you know what a 240 it's, uh, is because uh, you told me last <laughs> night. What's a 240? Well, it's actually called a Rule 240. A goes, Rule 240. It goes yeah. back to the days of the old Civil Aeronautics Board, but it survived deregulation. So in 1978, when they were out of business, it transferred over to the U.S. Department of Transportation. And what that rule says, and most people don't know it, is that in the event of any flight irregularity, almost sounds like the plane's constipated, uh, in the event of any flight irregularity <laughs> of any kind other than weather, Yeah. You can invoke Rule 240 as a passenger saying, hey, would you please Rule 240 me? Yes. And that means they have to endorse your ticket over to... Let me write this down. To, it's Rule yeah, 240. Yeah, rule 240, That's right. yeah. And that means they have to endorse your ticket over to the next available flight. Not their next available flight. They have flight. to legally. Yeah. Yeah. But so not if, their next available flight, which may not be till next Tuesday. Right. The Anyone. Next, well, no. It's it's only the legacy carriers. The, the guys who originally signed on to it. Ah. So that's American, United, Delta, Alaska, Frontier, uh, not Southwest, not JetBlue. Any airline that started after like 1972, they're they're not they're not embarked. They're not a part. I, I'm going to pull that sometime. You know, when you're standing there at the gate and you're wondering what to do because yeah. there's something wrong with your flight. But one caveat: yes. if if they cancel the last flight of the day, yeah. and it's really the last flight of the day, you can 240 all day long. You're not yeah. going anywhere. But can I quote you? Can I say, listen, my friend Peter Greenberg said I need to 240 you. I'll tell you a funny Rule story. 240 you. I was in New Orleans one day and yeah. I had to get to New York. And I got to the airport and there's a long line, I'm standing in line, and why was there a long line? Because the woman at the counter was telling everybody the flight was canceled, mm. right? And, 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 and told them they had no options. And I had just done a story about Rule 240 on NBC. And apparently the woman next to her at the counter looked up and saw me and went, oh no. And I said, everybody, we're going to 240 this. And I, <laughs> and I took 45 people. And 240 it? And we went on Delta instead of American. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Peter, how would you describe yourself? I, I mean, as a journalist first? I mean, past, once you get past the firefighting thing. Well, 
first and foremost, the journalist. Yes. Um, and people always ask you this question, and it's it, it's really a classic mistake. They go, yeah. when did you make the transition from journalism to travel? Stop right there. I'm more interested in the fireman to the travel. No. <laughs> well, the fireman allows you to be a better journalist, yeah. actually. But I've always been a journalist. Yes. All I've done is I've applied my investigative reporting techniques to travel the largest industry in the world. Yeah. Because most people would define travel writing as escaped librarians looking for a free cruise. Right. That's not me. Well, you've had, you've had a few freebies in your time, Peter, let's be honest. But that's not what's motivated oh, you. Oh, listen, you love a I'm good like story. the theater critic who gets tickets to opening night, but I reserve the right to say the play sucks. <laughs> in fact, one of my biggest selling books is a book that nobody wanted to publish, that nobody wanted to research for me, that nobody wanted to work on for me. Which was called? Don't Go There. Don't it go was, there. It was my guide to all the places in the world that suck. Right. Right? Because we have limited time and resources. I think you need to know the places you want to miss. Yeah. So when that deal came in and I went to the publisher and said, I want to do this book, they laughed at me. They said, we're not going to print it. Nobody's going to buy this. I said, I'll make you a deal. Don't give me an advance. Don't give me a dollar. They said yes to the deal. Yeah. And three weeks later, it was on the New York Times bestseller list because I touched a quarter of people who yeah. really wanted to know what they didn't want to do. Right. It's not my job to promote travel. It's my right. job to present it. Yeah. And, good, and you bad, said ugly. that over and over again. Yeah. And you're brutally honest. I got to be. Yeah. Uh, my audience would laugh me off the stage. That's part of your authenticity, right? You've yeah. got it. Your readers, your people who follow you, they've got to know that when Peter Greenberg says something, it's not because he's getting... Nobody know, paid me to say it. No. Right. And if I really like it, I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things that we don't know about, like some key things? I mean, there's so many ways that you've covered travel, but just to the average traveler, what are some key things that they can do to be better travelers? Well, they make a classic mistake. Everybody makes it, and I'll make a bet that you make it too. Uh -huh. How do you make your airline reservations? Online? Well, to be honest with you, Peter, a lot of times it's done for me. So, well, wait, but somebody's going online to do it. Yes, that's a huge error. Is because it? only fifty-two percent of the available inventory is online. So it's only what the travel providers want you to see. So I know why we do it because we've been uh, steered to do it. And there we are at two o'clock. Make it easy for yourself. Log oh, online. Sure. And you're doing it at two o'clock in the morning in your bathrobe. You don't have to talk to anybody. God forbid you should have to have a conversation with another human Especially being. Especially in this day and age. Right. And so while you're sitting there all fat, happy, and lazy, that you hit the right keystrokes. By definition, you've disenfranchised yourself from 48% of what's out and, there. And then you said something interesting. You said they only show you what they want to show you. Meaning exactly. they want to show you the fares that they want to sell, the ones that are not selling. And not only that, that, evol that involves rooting, that involves seat availability. All of those come into the same category of that you're only seeing what they want to show you. So don't go online. What do we Have do? Have a conversation. Call the airline directly. Because what they're looking at on their screen is not what you're looking at on your screen. How many times have you gone online to see only one seat left at this price? Well, the reality is it's only one seat left in their bucket at their online travel agency. doesn't mean there's only one seat left. Mm. The airlines are holding back 30%. And they understand because of their own algorithms how the flow works. And yeah, if, explain that because that, that algorithm is really interesting to me. They, well, they yeah. oversell flights, right? Because they know that people cancel. Well, on heavily traveled business flights, they'll, they'll oversell them because there's about a 30% no-show of business travelers playing full fare who want to cancel their reservations. Yeah. Uh, now, with the, in, you know, you know, with the innovation of the penalty fees, uh, that no-show factor has gone down. Yeah. And the airlines have managed their inventory better. But the real bottom line here is the numbers that you're looking at on your screen are not telling you the whole story. For example, you want to go from Los Angeles to Hawaii. All right, every airline flies it. Okay, great. But what they're not showing you on the screen is how you can save more money by turning the map upside down. 
So I go to Hawaii, LA, Las Vegas, Hawaii, LA, Phoenix, Hawaii. It's another hour and a half out of my life, but you're saving four to $600 every time you're doing it because the load factors are different on those flights. The bulk of your, your travel is, yeah. you, it seems you have a real passion for making people's travel experiences better. You want right. to tell them what not to do, what to do, where to go and so on. So where does that passion come from? Why are you so hell bent on making sure that people do the right thing when they travel? Well, I'm fascinated by the process. Mm. Um, I, I'm like the four-year-old who walks around everywhere with that terrible three-letter word, why, mm. why? And you know what? People will tell me because people are passionate about their jobs. Yeah. And then you learn from that. When I walk onto a plane, I don't turn right, I turn left. I go in the cockpit and I hang out with those guys because I can learn from them. And then I can explain everything to you. Yeah. So you were talking last night about places not to go. Yeah. You, 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 just give us a... Uh, well, my metric for that is yes. very simple. The U.S. State Department should be ashamed of themselves because even though they're well-intentioned with State Department advisories, yeah. they are by definition misleading, full of misinformation, and they scare people unnecessarily. So what would they say, for instance, about Jordan? Well, I'll tell you what they say about Indonesia. Give okay, you Indonesia. Americans yep. are warned to stay away from large crowds and avoid buses. I live in L.A. I stay away from large crowds and I avoid buses. Right. In fact, the reason why I avoid buses in L.A., I have no idea where they go. I've lived in LA since, since I'm 21. And, 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 also, and, and the real terrorism, I'm, I know if I ever get on a bus, I'm never coming back. Also, those buses, they take forever to get anywhere in LA. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the, the travel advisory for, for Turkey is, uh, Americans should be warned that Turkish drivers pass on the left and the right. Have they been on the San Diego freeway? I mean, come on, guys. That's not going to stop me from going to Turkey, but it stops a lot of people from going because they get scared. So here's what they did, which is stupid. The fact that these advisors have been around for a long time, as well-intentioned as they've been, is bad enough. About a year and a half ago, the State Department decided to change it up and they made it even worse. They now have a State Department advisory for every single country in the world divided under four categories. And the four categories are so absurd because by definition, they're going to scare you. Let me tell you the categories and see if you can understand why I laugh at this, right? Category number one, travel with normal caution. What the hell does that mean? Travel category number two, it gets worse. Travel with increased caution. By this time, people are digging a hole, right? Travel category number three, reconsider travel. They're putting plywood on their windows at this point. And then travel category four, which people think is a rule, a regulation, or a law, it's none of the above, is do not travel. So I'm giving you an example. Yeah. Right now, there are five states in Mexico that come under that category four, according to the State Department. Well, one of those states is Sinaloa. What's in Sinaloa? Mazatlan. I go there all the time. I'm not unsafe, threatened, or in danger. And yet we're painting with such a broad brush, yeah. we're sending the wrong message. So I get up there all the time, and the State Department hates it when I do it, and I tell people, don't listen to the U.S. State Department. Look at the British Foreign Office and see what they suggest. And what the do they do? They do a much better job. They give you real information. Yep. They're not just scaring you. They're not I, just trying to cover their ass. I'd be interested to see how they, based on the same rules, those four rules, how they would apply it to places in the United States that are dangerous. Oh, you wouldn't go. Right. You wouldn't go. I mean, if you applied the metrics that the U.S. State Department uses for foreign countries, yeah. we would be barricaded suspects in our own homes. And a lot of people don't realize that the United States is not the safest country in the world. They make the assumption that it is. No. And it's somewhere down around 30. I was just well, reading somewhere. Yeah. I'm going to give you a statistic that's going to blow your mind. Let's go back to December 21st, 1988. That was Pan Am 103. Yeah. A terrible disaster where a 747 flying from London to New York was blown up at 31,000 feet and it fell over Lockerbie. 259 Americans on the plane, 11 on the ground were killed. Well, that was 30 years ago, almost 31 years ago, all right? We know that 259 Americans were killed on that plane. Since that date, 
How many American civilians? We're not talking military, government. We're not talking anybody other than travelers, right? American regular citizens have been killed by acts of political terrorism and violence overseas in nearly 31 years. You know it's at least 259. Go ahead, take a guess. I, I, I couldn't even hazard a right. guess, Peter. You ready? Yeah. 707, okay? 707 over, 30, over nearly 31 years. Now let me put that in perspective. Every single week in this country, Nearly 800 of our fellow citizens are seriously injured and killed in accidents so in their are, own bathtubs. In, so, oh, in their bathtubs. In their bathtubs. So when somebody says to me, oh, I don't want to go, I'm going to stay home. You know what I say to them? It's okay with me, but if you want to take a bath, you're on your own. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean... You know, I used to love taking a bath, but now you made me think Well, twice. just be much more careful. Yeah. There's to be terror soap. Yes. You know? <laughs> wow. It's so true, though, This the perception of, of danger. Yeah. And the way that it's it, it, people think, oh, you know, it's so much safer to stay at home. And it isn't. Here's my metric. Look, I will read a State Department advisory as an advisory, not as a rule. Yeah. I'll read the British Foreign Office. But my real metric is, where will I not go? Hmm. Right. And my metric is based on who's not in control. Yeah. Not who's in control. So would I go to Iran tomorrow? Yeah, I know who's in control. Would I go to North Korea tomorrow? I know who's in control. Would I go to Yemen tomorrow? No, I would not. I don't know who's in control. Would I go to Syria tomorrow? No, I would not. Would I go to Camden, New Jersey tomorrow? <laughs> well, <sighs> but I'm almost running out of countries. Yeah. So of 196 countries in the world, about 189 I would go to. And look how much we don't go because we're scared. That's incredible. Yeah. And if you consider that America, I think the last statistic I saw is somewhere like 30 to 40, somewhere around there, and you, and you consider America to be safe, well, then think of all those countries that are ahead of the United States for okay. safety, and people are scared to go to those places. Yeah. Well, the, the, the safest countries in the world, I'm scared to go to only because their economy is so strong, it's too expensive. Yeah. But other than that, and that's, ter that's terrorism of another kind. Yeah. But other than that, no. I'm about 189 countries, I'm there. Okay. Peter, I loved last night when you were telling me a couple of like secret flights. There's a little known fact out there called Fifth Freedom Rights. And what that means is it allows an airline, international airline, that's not based in point A, to fly to a point B where it's also not based and take traffic. So for example, and I know you know this, if you want to go from Los Angeles to London, you can take Air New Zealand. Yeah, I love that uh, flight. You want to go from New York to Athens, you can take Emirates. These are nonstop flights. The one I talked about last night was Sao Paulo to Buenos Aires, I took Turkish Air. Right. Who knew, right? Who but knew? they fly yeah. it. I subscribe to a mag, uh, not a mag, a book. I get it every month yeah. that most people look at and think I'm crazy. It's called the OAG. Oh, it stands yeah. for Official Airline Guide. Yeah. In the old days, it was as big as the yeah, other I remember. Pages. Right, yeah. Huge. Every travel agent had it. It lists every published flight in the world. You won't find that on the internet. You'll find it in the book. So right? you can still order that book? Yeah, now it comes out in paperback yeah. and three different volumes. There's uh, Europe and and the uh, Europe and Africa and, and then Asia Pacific. I used to and live by that book. I have three of them in my room upstairs now because I can find flights on that book faster than you can go online and get them. If that, you can find them at all. Is that right? Yeah. So do you go online to find where to order the book? Or? Well, I'm sure you can just go to, well, I'm sure you go to Google and find yeah. official airline guide. Yeah. They even have an online version. No, you want the paperback because when you're at the airport and all hell breaks loose, you open the book. You don't stand in line and you got you have options. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, and then the other thing that you are really passionate about too is just is giving people information about safety. Should people be scared to get on planes, Peter? Because I, last night you kind of freaked me out a little bit because you were telling me that 
Well, you told me a few stories that just made me think a little bit. Um, well, look, there are only a couple of people who have more mileage than I do. See, the only answer for me is, of course, I get on a plane every day yeah. because I have to believe that the guy in the left seat wants to live just as much as I do. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm with him all the way. Okay. But let's look at the statistics. We have just celebrated, right? The word celebrate is important. The 11 safest years of commercial aviation since the Wright brothers, right? We've had one fatal accident in the United States in 11 years. That was Colgan Air back in February of 2009 near Buffalo, New York. That's it. While I'm talking to you right now, there are 47,000 planes that will be flying today. Say that number again. 47,000. And nothing happened. You can't even get your head around a number like 47,000. Right. How many takeoffs and landings does a plane do every day? Yeah. Multiply that. And nothing happened. Nothing happened yesterday. Nothing happened today. I'm, I'm counting on nothing happening tomorrow. Yeah. So here's the, here's the problem. We've, we're batting 1,000 just about. It's great. So can we improve on that number? No. Our challenge is how do we maintain it? Mm. And you don't maintain it if you look at the relationship that the FAA has with manufacturers, the FAA has with operators, and the FAA has with the public and the press. It's a completely messed up situation that goes back to when the FAA was established, that's the Federal Aviation Administration, by an act of Congress back in 1935. It was given a schizophrenic mandate. Can't do it. Enact and enforce safety policy and regulation and promote the business of aviation. You cannot do both. Mm. And time and time again, when the FAA has been confronted with overwhelming evidence, it sides on the site of economic impact to either the operators or the manufacturers. If you, Look, if I'm holding a pen in my pocket, right? And now I'm holding it in my hands. And I'm holding it with two fingers. And I drop the pen. And everybody dies. We investigate. What happened, Peter? I don't know. We'll check. Now we find out... It dropped because I should have had three fingers on it, okay? Mm -hmm. Is the third finger available? Yes, it is. So we should now hold all pens with three fingers. If we know the problem and we know the solution and then we consciously decide not to implement that solution, in my book, that borders on criminal negligence, mm. right? We are near that point today because of economic impact. If you have a problem and you have a solution, fix it. This goes back to your whole thing about you're not trying to make friends in the travel industry. You're trying to state the facts. You're trying to report the story. You want the public to know what's really going on. Right. But wait, having said just this, I'll be on a plane tomorrow. Yeah. It's that safe. Yes. But we can keep it safe. That's right. the key. But you're, you're, you do feel like this passion to keep them accountable, to keep people honest, to, keep, to, to make sure that people know what's going on. Absolutely. Because it all gets down to the money. It all gets down to the money. And when you have the accountants running the asylum, everybody goes crazy. And when they start cutting corners, that's when lives are at stake. You know, I, I see some travel stories sometime and I feel like there's, there's something missing. There's a context missing. And I missed your voice when we saw this Norwegian cruise line out floating around in the ocean. I heard that the engine had gone down and they had to turn it off. I, I, but I didn't. I wasn't seeing someone go on air as an expert, as a travel expert like you are, and giving me some context about what I was looking. All I saw were these, these, this sort of clickbait video. If I show you a video of a terrible hotel fire in which a lot of people died, okay, that's news. We're obliged to cover that. I get that. But am I really helping you by not telling you what you need to know the next time you stay at a hotel? Yeah. I'm not. So that's what I have to do. And I'm forgetting the fact that I'm a fireman. I'll ask, I'll ask you this question. You're asleep in this hotel where yes. we are right now. Yeah. It's two o'clock in the morning and you hear the fire alarm. You're in bed. Yes. What's the first thing you do? Well, I have a, uh, I, I generally travel with my phone next to me or a flashlight right. 
But the other thing I do before, as soon as I go into any room, is I look at the fire escape plan right. on the back of the door. That's all well and good, but you didn't answer my question. Yep. You're in bed. The fire alarm goes off. You hear it. What's the first thing? First you do? thing I would do is run to the door and check whether there's smoke or heat against the door. Okay, you're dead. Oh shit. Yeah. Why? Because people don't die from the fire; they die from toxic fumes. You stand up, you're done. Smoke oh. rises. What you're going to do, and it's it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Roll out of the bed to the floor and crawl to the door. That's right. You want to oh, stay wow. below the smoke level, and then you can put your hand on the door and see if it's hot. But where people get into trouble is they stand, stand up. up. Don't do it. Peter, this is like a hugely valuable tip. I just saved your life. You That'll could be $5. have saved my life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I'm, so I'm not going to have a bath. And I'm. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. If the fire is really bad, yeah. jump in the bathtub. Well, yeah. that's the other trick is you get a towel, right? You wet the towel and you wrap it around your face. With well, the... no. First of all, you wet the towel and you put it under the door. I, right. right. If there's that. heat. If there's heat. Yes. You yeah. put it under the door. Then the thing you do, right, is go in the bathroom. Turn on the faucet for the shower and the tub because the steam will capture a lot of the particulates in the smoke that are also going to kill you, right? This is good. I'm just telling you. Yeah, no, this is good. So the questions you need to ask yes. uh, before you ever get a key, yes. right, is this. First of all, you heard me say about fire. You would never want to stay above the sixth floor, ever. Because there's not a fire department in the world that can effectively fight a fire above the sixth floor. Uh -oh. So what if you floor want, are we on here? you're on thirty. We're on thirty. This yeah. is not so a you good know what idea. You have? No, no. You have a view, a beautiful view of the I've fire got a department great view. of the fire department being unable to reach you. So here's the deal: you want to stay below the sixth floor. That's number one. Not only that, when you're up here, the elevator becomes a local write anyway. I this down, Peter. I got to write this I know. down. Sixth Second floor. thing you want to do: yeah. here are the questions you want to ask. Yeah. And some of them just to deal with lifestyle and, and peace of mind. Second question you want to ask is, before you give me my room key, can you tell me how close my room is to the construction? Because every hotel operates on a cycle. There's at least one floor of this hotel right now that's closed because they're redoing it, right? Well, if you don't find out where that construction is, you're going to be given the keys to the jackhammer suite. You're a great storyteller. I've listened to many of your stories. Um, Anything else we need to know about hotels? I see also people are traveling now with these blue lights where they're walking around. I, well, I, we, were the, we were the first guys who did that story. Really? Well, we black lighted so the blankets. So explain that. Well, yeah. the very first thing I do when I get to a hotel is I take the duvet and I take it off the bed and I throw it in the corner because they don't clean that every day. Hello? Okay, they don't. Oh. That's why we did the black light on that, right? Yeah. So That you was you? That was me, yeah. Uh. What, are we, you, what are we looking at? Because I, I think it was... The, 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 well, the go, most germs yeah. were on the remote, on the TV okay, remote. Okay, the most number of germs you're going to find are on the TV remote, followed by the telephone handset, Yeah. followed by one other thing, and it's not the duvet, and it's in the bathroom. What is it? Um, well, it, it, you would think it was the toilet. It's but not. It, it's not? No. It, it's a, and I'll tell you what you do. It's the water glasses, and I'll tell you why. Ah, oh, no, because really? Made, oh, yeah, but, but not for the reasons you'd suspect. Oh, Hotel, let me guess, let me guess. What? The cloth that they use to clean the floor, they pick it up and they... No. no. I oh. said not for the reasons you'd suspect. Well, okay. But nice try. You would yeah. nothing for that. Okay. No, here's what it is. Hotel maids usually are tasked with a really tough deal. They got to clean between 12 and 14 rooms per shift. Hmm. Let's say that your room is the 12th room in their shift and they're running out of time. A lot of maids don't get to those glasses, right? So they just rinse them out in cold water and put them back. But that's from the previous guest. So here's what you do. You must assume that every time you check into a hotel, your room was the 12th, 13th, or 14th room. It's a very simple solution. Take the water glass, put it under hot water for three minutes, and you're good to go. Uh, hidden gems. Anything you can tell us about hidden gems, the things that we 
we should maybe aspire to trying in our travels. Yeah. Do you know what I give my friends for Christmas every year? And I buy out the stores, right? I give them an atlas. Yeah. I challenge my friends the following way. I'm giving you this atlas, but I'm going to tell you where to put it. Put it on your bedside table. Yeah. And every night before you go to bed, open it to a random page and wake up, learn something. Yeah. And they go, really? Yeah, really. And three days later, they go, I had no idea where Timbuktu was. Right. Mm. Now we're talking, you know. They'd heard about it, but they didn't know it was in Mali. You know, so it's that kind of stuff. There's so many wonderful quotes. Mark Twain's got great travel quotes, but there's so many great quotes about what travel does to enrich us. What does Peter, Peter Greenberg say about the value of travel for people? What do you think it gives? What's the best thing it gives us? Well, it gives us the opportunity to tear down walls, mm. literally, and to build bridges because we seek out common ground, right? We, rel we relate. And the other thing, that travel does, it allows us, if we let it, to get rid of two of the worst five-letter words in our vocabulary. One is plans, mm -hmm. and the other is later, right? Yeah. So I think in your experience, you'd vouch for this. I can certainly vouch for it in mine, that the best experiences I've ever had when I traveled was when the plans didn't work. Yeah, or something went wrong. And you had to turn left instead of turning yeah. right, and that's where you met a lifelong friend that you never would have met otherwise. Yeah. That's the beauty of it for me. Did you always know that even when you were the 18-year-old fireman, that this no was going to be your life? I was the youngest correspondent ever hired in the history of Newsweek, when Newsweek was Newsweek. And I so was, this was a passion for writing in general? I was a journalist, right. Yeah, but, but, what, but what, was there, were there certain things that you gravitated towards as a well, writer? Well, here's what happened. Here I was covering everything west of the Mississippi River. Yeah. I had my suitcase packed in the trunk of my car because I was always rushing to the scene of something, yeah. which meant I was always on a plane. And it dawned on me very early in my Newsweek career that nobody was covering travel as news. They were covering it as size zero, breasted large women at the beach with a, with a wine glass. <laughs> not, my, I, I, my, not my idea of a good travel story. So what I did in those days, I used my access as a journalist to get thoroughly trained in the cockpit, to get thoroughly trained in the cabin. And you still go and do work I on train, a simulator, right? I train six times a year in the simulators. And why is that? Why would... I'll tell you why. Okay. I am not a licensed airline captain. I don't want to give anybody that impression. But what I am is I know what the bells and whistles are. I know the questions to ask so that when I walk into a cockpit, I can have a conversation with those pilots that they know that I know what I'm talking about and I can learn from them. They are then comfortable enough to tell me what's really going on. And then you can translate that techno jargon into something that's digestible for the layman. Absolutely. So, but the only way to do that is you have to have knowledge greater knowledge. For example, the day that Sully, that Sully put, the, put the plane in the... In Which the, you did in, a documentary on. Yeah. That was the miracle on the Hudson. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sorry. So, so, you, so when that happened, we went on the air with a one hour special that night, but I was able as the correspondent to tell you everything they did before they put it in the water yeah. because I'd, I'd practiced it. That's just the kind and, of... And it is a miracle. What, what? Oh, let me tell you something. I went back and flew it in the simulator after yes. the fact and put in all the parameters that, ha that were in play that day. Yeah. Let me tell you this. If the birds had hit that plane one minute earlier in its trajectory, it never would have made the river. If the birds had hit him one minute later, he never would have been able to turn around and make it back to the river. If it had happened one hour earlier in that particular day, guess what? There was no visibility in the river. And if it happened one hour later, the river had iced up. And at the very moment he put that, that plane on the river, all the boats had moved to different sides of the river. He had a clear shot. It was everything aligned. He only cleared the George Washington Bridge by about 600 feet. Here's the most Whoa. miraculous fact I can share with you about that day. He puts it in the Hudson on a very cold January afternoon, right? Yes. From the moment that plane came to a rest on the river, 
How long did it take everybody to be rescued? I would say 30 minutes. 24 minutes. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Where he parked that plane in the water, certainly not by design, it was only about a thousand feet from where the boats yeah. could just lift the ropes up and go get them. Yeah. And, it was and, unreal. And that the imagery of them all standing out on the wing, yeah. uh, waiting to, to get rescued. And, and just the fact that the water was calm enough and... Only for about another 40 minutes. Yeah. And then it all iced up. And that, that, and then play, so that plane ended up floating all the way down the river. So by the time I caught up with the plane to do my stand-ups, it was at the battery. Yeah, and it was a miracle. And, and the fact that he was a glider pilot, was that the, the major the, factor? The best part about Sully on that plane on that day was pilots earn their money when they fly the plane, not when they monitor systems. Yes. And he flew the plane. Yeah. And, and that, but that touch, that feel of knowing what it's like to fly without an engine. Well, understanding drag, understanding drag is, is the key. Yeah. Because it's not that you've lost speed, it's you're going to lose control at a certain point because you are losing you speed and you're losing altitude. The wings. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you won an Emmy for that. Yeah. Congratulations. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't, I should have said congratulations a lot. lot well, 10 years ago, yeah, right? I should have said congratulations. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. Was, was, it was 10 years ago? It was. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little late, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, when, when something happens, when an incident happens, like with this uh, 737 yeah. MAX, and we're not sure if they're, when they're going to fly again, but to combat that, that problem, will they then immediately ensure that pilots go through a simulated process of dealing with that issue? Well, the biggest problem here was there was no simulator. Right, but I mean, going forward, going is that forward, generally what happens? Going forward, it's going to all be done by the book. Yeah. This is was, this was a plane that was rushed into certification uh, because of that relationship that because Boeing... Because Airbus had that neon plane coming out, right? Neo. Neo. Neo planes, yeah. Yeah. Even if they hadn't done it, Boeing was just on a rush to get yeah. it out. Um, and because of their strength in numbers and their strength in mass, being the biggest foreign exporter in this country, uh, they, had, they were able to pressure the FAA into looking the other way, perhaps, in speeding up that process. We don't know exactly how they look the other way. Congress is looking at it right now, but it's clear that they didn't follow the normal certification process. Normally, when you develop a new plane, now this was not a new plane, it was a new version of a plane, but normally when you develop a new plane, the traditional certification process is you take a prototype and you put it on a test bed, and then you take every component part to failure. That's how you write the manuals. Don't fly it faster than this because the wing will fall off. Don't fly it slower than this. Don't fly it higher than this. That's how they write it. When they developed the Boeing 787, it was the first time that, that the FAA gave them permission to certify the entire plane on computer. I'm sorry. That doesn't make me a happy guy. Mm. Uh, and not only that, you were dealing with a plane that was made almost entirely of composite materials. A wing will bend. A composite material will snap. So I really wanted that thing taken to failure. I wanted to know. You know oh, the fact that it was done on computer, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable with that. Now, have I flown the 787? Many times. Did I enjoy the ride? Yes. Are the technical innovations great on that plane in terms of pressurization and, 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 and range? Absolutely. But it's an, it's an indication of a relationship that the manufacturer has with the regulator that needs to be redefined. Do we need to worry about the 787? Is that a plane that we should be? We should be worried about any plane that isn't thoroughly certificated in the right way. So, However, yes. having said that, I just got finished telling you, I fly it. Yeah. So we need more work to be done. Um, I've seen footage of, of 
777, for instance, I remember they were throwing like frozen turkeys into the turbine. Oh, they they throw frozen turkeys into the engines of every plane that's developed because that's part of the certification process of how you prove an engine. Can it sustain a bird strike? Here's the problem with that test, which explains what happened to Sully over the Hudson. They usually throw one bird at a time. Birds don't fly one bird at a time. They fly as a flock. Mm. What do you think hit that Airbus 320 with Sully? It was a flock that hit both engines. Mm. Bye-bye. Yeah. Right? So we have to redefine the testing process, too. I've seen the wings getting bent in footage. So have they not done that on any of these carbon fiber planes? Not really. Oh. No. So I, I don't like to hear that. I, well, me too. That's why I brought it up. I, I mean, when you look at it... At, 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 at However, let's go back to the statistics. The airline industry and the aircraft manufacturing industry yeah. can effectively argue the point of how safe it is. And they're right. But from my perspective, how do you maintain it? Hmm. And if you can't maintain it, that's an accident waiting to happen. Peter, you've done so much in your life already, and, and uh, you continue to follow stories you're passionate about we end the podcast with a couple of questions and uh one involves a, it's a travel question if you were going to take a road trip and you could take anybody from any time in history in the car with you uh, three people if you could take three people in the car with you who would you take with you i'd take my father uh because that my first road trip was with him i'd take my mother because she's the one who encouraged the first road trip <laughs> yeah what was the car by the way oh the first car was a 1952 Cadillac, maroon Cadillac used, used. Um, and it was a convertible that didn't really work. Uh, so we got well. Would, would you swap the car out or would you take the same one? You know what? I'm such a sentimental slob, I'd probably take the same car. All right, there's one more person that can go with you, Peter. Yeah, well, that would probably be uh, my current girlfriend because the beautiful, the beautiful thing about travel is by definition, it's it's an experience meant to be shared. Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, yeah. and Peter, your your last day on Earth. If you if you knew you were living your last day on Earth, what would you do with that last day? Uh, Where would you want to be? What would you want to be doing? I would call into the room about three thousand people and read a list to them of everybody who made me pissed off. Uh, really? <laughs> you get one shot. Yeah. Come so, on, yeah. pull the pin, throw the grenade. Yeah. Wow. I, I brought you all in here today to say, fuck you, you suck, and you're an asshole. <laughs> well, I did not expect that answer. You know why? Because you want something very emotional. Uh, yeah. You want something very beautiful. The sun is setting. No, fuck you, you suck, and you're an asshole. <laughs> you get one shot at it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Did you like that one? I did. I hope I'm not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Is good. that all right? I want Peter on my road trip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us and follow Bucket that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. See you soon.